we have internet, everything's working, but we can't seem to stream. So, uh, sorry. All right, we're going to open up in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. The thing that we're looking at today is Satan, and uh, it's a daunting subject uh, because of what we know and what we don't know. And uh, they're both uh, kind of, well, uh, challenging, I guess is the word. Um, so, like I put on my title, you know, why does God allow this? This has been a question throughout the ages. Why would God create some, someone, something, some angel that would fall and create such evil and havoc that he has? And um, it, it made me think of, well, you know, what is the best life? If Satan has chosen the worst, what is the best? What is the best life? And is there such a thing as a best life? Is life just existence? Or is there a great life? Or is there a bad one, a good one, a better one, and so on? You know, are there grades? And wh- where do we find that? You know, how would we define it? Satan, God's adversary, is on earth allowed to tempt, to slander, to oppose, to create great evil and havoc in the world and in people's lives, from governments themselves all the way down to the lowest individual person. And in so doing, he inadvertently pressures people's lives. And when life is pressured, when life is tested, it shows itself. It shows its quality. And, it, and th- there is, is there a best life? It certainly is. It's the only life. It's God. He's self-existent. He's the only uncreated one. His life is the best life. And when a human being has that life, that life is tested, it's pressured by the life that is God's adversary, number one adversary. And what Satan does, and he he inadvertently does it, is reveal the best life and its source. So let's open up in prayer and be grateful for the life that God has given us and actually be grateful for the pressure that God allows in this world because it's the only thing that reveals the purity of life. So with humility and reverence and thankfulness to God, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for all the things that you have blessed us with through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for uh, him and for the many blessings that come through him to us, which are innumerable, Father. If we could count them all, there would still be more. We thank you for your grace and patience because we do not always live up to what we should be and should be doing, but you, Father, are, have forgiven us of all things. And so, Father, we depend upon your, ba- your grace and your patience, and we thank you for them. We ask, Father, that through your word our hearts would be enlightened with this somewhat difficult subject. We ask for your guidance and clarity. In Christ's name, amen. So is Satan, who is he? He's a fallen angel. Um, that is what most Christians believe. It seems to bear out in the scriptures. If you're looking through the scriptures for a detailed biography of this being, this fallen angel, you're not going to find it. 
most Christians believe that he was the greatest of angels as the anointed cherub from Ezekiel 28. The passages that we use mostly to explain him in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 don't actually mention him. But the details of those passages seem to speak of someone that is much more than a man. Uh, <clears throat> however, my job here today is not to go into a theological discussion of who Satan is. Let's assume that he is, as he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he is obviously God's great adversary. Uh, and <clears throat> by some, this great angel, now God would never create a, sinning, a sinner, God would never create a fallen being. And so the fall of Satan, though we don't know why he did what he did and what even he did to fall, uh, but we gather by many scriptures that by some rising pride within him, some pride within himself, some uh, love of himself, he fell and rebelled against God. When we look at his names in the scripture, they're all titles. None of them are actual names because all of them are used in, a, in the context of a title. Uh, for instance, the word Satan is used and it, in your Bible translated as a gossip because Satan means an adversary. And when we malign or slander someone, we become an adversary to them. The word is used that way, uh, speaking obviously of a person, not Satan. But anyway, Satan means it's a title. Satan means adversary. It's an Old Testament and New Testament term. The devil, the Greek is diabolos, and that means slanderer. And pornero, uh, oh, uh, sorry, perazo, uh, which is used here in Matthew, is tempter. And that is, there's not a name there, but that is a title given to by Matthew to this fallen creature, fallen angel. Uh, in our passage in Matthew chapter 4, he is described as the devil. Jesus addresses him as Satan, as Satana, and uh, he is also called the tempter. So that's why I use all three of these terms. We could look up Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies, and uh, all, uh, some others as well. And we'll look at a, a bit of them. But uh, please note that it's a title. That means adversary or slanderer. And if it were not for Job and our passage in Matthew 4, we might actually, if we put all the passages together, assume that it is some adversary or maybe a group of, you know, the whole world that is adversarial or some against God. But because we have Job 1 and 2, where Satan speaks to God or God speaks to him back and forth in a conversation, and here we see him in a conversation with Christ that we come to know that he is definitely a person. He's a fallen angel, the greatest of God's creatures who has fallen. I would say the greatest angel. Let's not say the greatest creature. And uh, the Jews knew him as the ruler of the demons, and Christ acknowledged this. When they, said, they, when they called Christ Beelzebul, they, they said he, is, he does his miracles by the ruler of the demons. And then Jesus responded, that if Satan's kingdom is divided, it won't stand. So, when, when Jesus responds to that, he's saying Satan is a person and Satan has a kingdom. We see this. Now, it's delightedly frustrating, this whole topic. <laughs> because what I, I know by now in my work in the scripture, that when God doesn't reveal stuff, we don't need it. 
And, and we can, what happens is too, I've, I've seen this over the years, that where God doesn't reveal stuff, there's plenty of people who are more than willing to fill it in. And we shouldn't do that at all because we're gonna, there's no way we can know and we're going to get stuff wrong. <clears throat> God gives us enough. First off, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, very popular passage to speak of Satan that he is the God of this world. As Paul states here, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And so he is of the uh, God of the world. And somehow, some way, ruling the world that God has allowed him to. That's important for us to know because as he has tempted and tested Christ, he is going to tempt and test you. Jesus also calls him the ruler of the world in John 12, 31. The ruler of this world will be cast out. So we know from this and from the words of our Lord, that this ruler is going to be defeated. He has no hope of whatever he thinks is victory, uh, which generally we would uh, see as the defeat of God's plans, any defeat of God's plans. I most agree that the incredible amount of anti-Semitism that's in the world, which amazingly has cropped up again after years and years of repeated and repeated. We've seen this. It's documented. And yet, here it comes again. And, um, and this is because God has made promises to Israel. And therefore, the, as God's elect nation, as God's elect people, with, who are recipients of God's covenants and promises, that Satan is going to do everything in his power to destroy them. And so, so as the ruler of this world, but we see here that he is going to be defeated. He actually already has been. His time is... Well, his ticket's been punched. It's only a matter of time before he is thrown into the lake of fire, as we see in Revelation. In Matthew 25, 41, uh, same as, you know, he'll be cast out. Well, we find here, and this is fulfilled in Revelation, Revelation 20, that Matthew 25, 41, he, Jesus says, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And using the Greek word angelos here in the plural, it shows us that something that we'll see here in just a second, that the way Satan is going to rule this world and does rule this world is with this lot. And whoever, you know, what we see here that they're angels, sometimes called demons. It's a different Greek word. Some have even speculated that demons are some other kind of creature than angels, but there's no way to know that. Let's just assume, let's take it simply, that the fallen uh, Satan has fallen angels that for whatever reason have joined his cause. There's all kinds of ways people have tried to describe this. We, we don't know, but we do know that he has an uh, organized, demonic, fallen angel organization. And they are a plethora, a multitude. And this is how he runs his world. You know, he's, if he's an angel, and he is, then you know, he can only be in one place at one time. So how in the world is he going to be the god of this world and influence the world and run the world the way that he does? And this shows us. So again, my goal is not a theological study of this fallen creature. Not, not today. I'm not even going to spend all that much time with, on him because he is not the center of Matthew's gospel. Jesus Christ is, and that's where we're going to spend the most of our time. But my goal is to make us aware before we move on. And, and we'll see, as we go through the temptations of Christ all next week, that um, 
we have to either be aware. If you're not aware, be aware. <laughs> if you're already aware, be reaffirmed, which takes a reminder that there is, in fact, a devil who is a real creature who has a real purpose and his entire existence is to the is dedicated to opposing God, to opposing God's church, to opposing God's truth, to opposing God's gospel, and therefore opposing you if you're a believer. There's nothing to be afraid of and for, for this reason. He, he's doomed. He's already been defeated. Uh, greater is he that's in you that's in, than he that's in the world. We have nothing to be afraid of. We actually should rejoice in this because, again, if you want to live the life, the greatest life, then trial and test is what is going to make you mature in it. There's no other way. There's no other way to maturity than trial and testing and pain and suffering. And um, in, in varying degrees. I love how James puts it, you know, rejoice in our trials, in our various trials, because there are various ones, there are various kinds. So Feist that he is a he, a murderer, a liar. Jesus says he's a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He's immoral, self-seeking, and that <clears throat> the world of men, especially in their pride, are taken with him. That what he sells and propagandizes to mankind, people love it. And of course he does. He's not stupid. He knows what appeals to the fallen mind. He knows what appeals to the sin nature. He knows what appeals to the intellect of the fallen mind, as well as the grave lusts of the fallen mind. The, the entire gamut of, you know, the, the greatest intellectual, intellectual at Harvard down to the, you know, whoever is, would be involved in the greatest lust in the gutters. You know, it's, he appeals to all and has schemes for all. His organization of this world is ridiculous. It is. We see, just those of us who know truth, we look at the world and the doings of the world. And if you've read any history, you see that what people do time and time again are the, just the most ridiculous things. Stupidity. And yet, we as believers who know the truth, we're told and warned, don't fall for it. And, uh, and why is that? Because even with all of God's word that you know, you can still fall for the schemes of the devil as ridiculous as they are, which shows us who we are, right? We're, the only good in us is from God in and of ourselves. When we start looking at ourselves independently away from God, we're in trouble, even to the most stupidest of things. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. I could have put this on the board, but I wanted to go to Ephesians 6 anyway. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul talking about them and us as unbelievers. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience is a title that's used here for the unbelievers in this world. And they're everywhere. They're not limited to any one part of the world. They're everywhere. Uh, so that would mean that he is working everywhere. This prince of the power of the air is definitely speaking of him because Paul uses the same kind of description for him and his, uh, his organization in Ephesians 6. 
so, you know, if this means that he's working everywhere and there are unbelievers and this also backslidden believers who are influenced by lies uh, and things that are immoral, self-serving, sinful, and evil, if he's a creature who can only be in one place at one time, then how? You know, how does he work in all the sons of disobedience? Go to Ephesians 6, 11. This is important for us to be reminded of because he's everywhere. And not that he's everywhere, but his network is everywhere. And not just on earth, but all around the earth, as it's put here. So, uh, look at Ephesians 6.11. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there are world forces of darkness. It seems to state that those are the, the uh, forces that are on the earth. And then there are spiritual forces of wickedness that are in the atmosphere, uh, in, which is heavenly places. Heavenly places is just the plural of heaven. And then the Greek word is arenios. It means the heavens. And so we have uh, on earth and all around the earth. So, to summarize, so far, you and I have God's greatest adversary, a fallen angel who's constantly lying, trying to murder. He slanders, accuses. He has an enormous amount or enormous number of fallen angels under his command, and they're all over the earth and all around the earth, all throughout the atmosphere. And they're there to influence governments, banks, markets, nations, all the way down to the smallest family to the lowest individual person, he does not care, it would seem. All he wants to do is influence people to oppose God. And if you're a believer, to turn from God, to turn away from him. You know, I, in, in this study, I, have, I, I meant to read it through, but uh, I picked up screw tape letters and started leafing through it again. And because this is, I mean, if you are looking for some side reading to our next week's study, I highly, I highly recommend it. The Schemes of the Devil. C.S. Lewis hits it really well. You know, it's allegorical. It's made up. It's not real. But it's truly magnificent how much insight he has into the workings of the devil. In that he's just, and, and the, the, um, the, the man that they're trying in this book, that they're trying to uh, destroy, basically, had, had become a believer and is a believer who is trying to get to know God. And, you know, Lewis comes up with all kinds of schemes by which these demons would try to distract him from that. And it, it's truly insightful. Now, whatever he can do, whatever he can do to get your eyes off of your Savior in this word, and onto yourself mainly, onto yourself, onto your circumstances, onto people, and you know if I if I have the time here, I'll show you that you know one of the things that he wants to truly destroy in you is the love of God. He don't want you to have that, and it's precisely what had delivered the churches. That Paul, especially that first church that Paul wrote to, the Thessalonians, it was the love of God in them that delivered them from the direct attack from Satan. 
All right, so go to Matthew 4.1. Because we want to look at our Lord quickly here first. Not so quickly, but I think in every one of these classes, we want to highlight Him first and then apply it to ourselves. Matthew 4. We're just going to look at 1 through 3. Because we find here a, a multi-layered attack. Because as, as with Eve in the Garden of Eden, he didn't just take fruit and shove it in her face and say, eat it. You know, he didn't like, it wasn't a full frontal direct attack. It's, you know, it's a deceptive around flanking maneuver. And the first thing he tries to get her to do is doubt. Has God really said? Does God, isn't God hiding stuff from you like he's getting him to doubt? He does the same thing here to Jesus, but in a slightly different way. And it shows us that God, uh, Satan sorry, knows his target. Uh, so when Jesus was led up by the Spirit, sorry, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So notice the first part of this is a question. He doesn't say, hey, turn those stones into bread. He says, if you are the Son of God, turn them into bread. We know here Jesus is hungry. He's starving, in fact. Forty days without food is crazy. Uh, so, but, so, I, and I, you know, it, so could he be making Jesus, would his desire be, to get Jesus to doubt that he's actually the Son of God. And it, I, don't know, I considered that for two seconds, and I was, no way. No way. It's, first off, it's too direct, and it's too much. Like, of course he's not going to deny that he's the Son of He just heard from heaven after he got baptized, this is my Son, in whom I will please. I, I, of the voice of heaven. He knows that's the Father. The Father confirmed him so that everybody could hear. But the grown-up, 30-year-old Lord Jesus coming out of baptism heard it himself. And he's confirmed. And he's also, um, well, what I, I meant identified. He's identified. Identified as the Son of God. The beautiful part of this, too, is he says, I'm well pleased in you. And that's his confirmation. You know, God has said the same to every one of you. You are my son. And in you, because of Christ, I am well pleased. So Satan's not getting him, in my estimation, to be uh, doubting that he is the son of God. What I think he's doing here, and I say I I think, because there's uh, multiple theories on this. There's no commentary here on why Satan asked if you are the Son of God. But I think here Satan attempts to get Jesus to doubt the purpose of the Son of God. The purpose. And the reason why I think that is because his question is aimed at the fact that if you're the Son of God, what are you doing in the wilderness with no food? This is the life of the Son of God? Seriously? Aren't you the king of kings? Didn't John just announce that at the door is near the kingdom of heaven? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, uh, is at hand, he says. And so, uh, 
you know, if you're the king, why are you in the wilderness alone with no food? Now, Satan knows his target. Know your enemy. The art of war, Sung Su. It's the only part of it I've ever known. I haven't ever read it. But Sung Su in his art of war says, know your enemy. That's one of the tenets to, the, to it. You, you study your enemy. Satan knows his enemy. He knows you too. His attack against Jesus is unique, but it's still aimed at the same end. Get him to doubt that. And it's not successful, but that's what he's after. Get him to doubt the plan of God for his life. So, here, me just estimating here. It could be something like this. Satan says, should the Son of God be starving in the desert? And Jesus' response would be, yes. Why? He would know why. I'm the servant. I'm his servant, Israel. Does Jesus know that being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, he is actually fulfilling what Israel failed at. They were 40 years in the wilderness. They failed. It's all over the Old Testament, repeated and repeated and repeated. Does Jesus know that in going into the wilderness for 40 days, in the very place where Moses was up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, the very place where Elijah came running from Jezebel for 40 days and 40 nights, that he knows that he's here to fulfill what all of Israel failed at? I think most definitely yes. And I also think this because God states this. He must and do all that Israel could not do. He must fulfill all that Israel could not fulfill. Matthew actually brings this out wonderfully in, in, uh, in his gospel here in the beginning where he says as a fulfillment of prophecy, when the baby or the young Jesus went to Egypt to escape the persecution of Herod, and he came back from Egypt to go live in Nazareth, Matthew says, to be fulfilled what was written in the prophet, out of, by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's in Hosea. Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. What, when was Jesus called out of Egypt as his son? How does, Hosea, how does that fulfill Hosea's prophecy? It's because Israel was called out of Egypt, and when they were called out of Egypt, they failed. But when the Lord Christ was called out of Egypt, he succeeded. He's the one that prophesied by Isaiah also in chapter 7 that the virgin would have a son. And here he is. He's the one who fulfills it. He is the one who fulfills all things Israel. Now, notice Isaiah 49.3. This is one of the servant songs. This is talking of the Lord Jesus. Notice servant here is capitalized by New American Standard because they agree with that, that this is about the Lord Jesus. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. Why is God calling his son Israel? And I think for this very reason, Jesus... and in whom I'll show my glory. Israel did not do this. Israel worshipped idols. They became legalistic after they worshipped idols. They failed and failed. But 
The Lord Jesus did show his glory. He did do all that Israel should have done. Followed the law perfectly. Sinless. Absolutely and completely obedient to the Father. He loved the Father with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. When he taught Sermon on the Mount, he taught the law as it was meant always to be. And he fulfilled it. And then, in also with the law, he gave his life, his blood, the blood of Christ, to atone for the sins of the world and fulfilled the Day of Atonement, which is the very center of the Torah. It's amazing. It's wonderful here. So, again, what are you doing starving in the desert? I am the servant of Israel. I am, sorry, I am his servant Israel. Now, where did he learn that? It's just what he's doing here when he speaks to the devil. When he overcomes the temptations of the devil, what is he using? The word of God. The word of God states what he must be and what he must do, and he's following it. You see that? And you and I can do the same, even though we mightily struggle with it. But God is so patient with us to teach us and mature us so that we can come to a point where we, where we will truly be on board to say, I am going to do all your will according to all your word. And as it worked out for him, it's going to work out for you. That's the promise. What an exciting and amazing life that is. <coughs> I wish I knew of it 30 years ago, even five years ago. So, however, this is not the full attack. This is the first part. Get him to doubt. Should the Son of God... Now, the second... I mean, should you be starving in the wilderness? So what's the next part? After you create doubt, and all you need is plant a seed. You and I all know this. If we have any doubt according to the promises and plans of God, we will... Well, do we put our all into things that we doubt even a little? We don't. Do we put our heart, mind, and soul into things that we doubt? If there is a kernel of doubt in there, we kind of like hold back a little. Shouldn't Now, here's the next part. If you're the son of God, shouldn't you be able to take care of yourself? Shouldn't you be able to take care of yourself? Now, why, is, why would he say that? It's because, well, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. You have the power. Why don't you make yourself something to eat? You have the power. Now, in our independent culture in America, we have possessed, we possess this very spirit in a good way, that we work hard and we're independent. I will do that. You know, we have that hard work ethic. I mean, most, I still think most people in America still have it. And uh, that we have a spirit of hard work and independence in a good way. However, when a work is not a part of the will of God, no matter how much we try to support it with how virtuous we are or how hardworking we are, if that work is not a part of the word of God or the will of God, it is not virtuous, and it has no character. A lot of people pour a lot of effort and a lot of work into things that are not godly. But they'll pat themselves on the back at such hard workers they are. 
Jesus can turn these stones into bread. Right after these trials, he starts his ministry in Galilee and he starts doing miracles by the thousands. He can easily turn stones into bread, but this is not a part of the will of God. So we might ask, well, is it a part of the will of God for him to eat? Well, of course it is. Not just now, though. He is a servant of God. What has mankind, fallen mankind, done? We have chosen independence from God. I can do that myself. Even us as believers are at times say, God, why don't you have a seat? I can do this. Right? We have this spirit of independence. I can do this, God. I don't need you. <laughs> we say it. We, maybe we don't say it plainly out loud, but we say it in the back of our heads somewhere. Man has chosen independence. But Jesus Christ will never choose independence, never did. And that's here again. When he comes out of the water after baptism, this is what the Father speaks. But the, in Matthew and Luke and Mark and John, yeah, it's in all, th- all four, right? That when this is spoken, servant is changed to son. And so a lot of people think what God the Father is doing is mixing Psalm 2 with Isaiah 42. And you, you want to read those, you can put them together and you'll see that. But in Isaiah 42, what is he called? What is his title? It's not behold my son, it's behold my servant. And in all the songs of the servant, Isaiah 42, 49, 51, and 54. Sorry, 53. 53. Isaiah 53 is the greatest one. He is always called the servant. So what does that mean? I'm only going to do what the Father tells me to do. I can totally make bread, but not now. You see, I'm the servant. But wait, if you're the son of God, shouldn't you take care of yourself? Don't we all have this temptation to us? Show yourself strong. Don't depend on God so much. I heard a great story of a man who, uh, he, uh, his dad was an alcoholic, and he was an alcoholic, and he was a young man, and he finally gave up, he gave up drinking. And it was because he became a Christian. He gave up drinking. And he told his father this. So him and his father used to go hunting together. And they, they were out hunting. And the, the father says, well, aren't you going to drink? And his son said, no. He said, why not? He said, well, I became a Christian. You know, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I worship Christ. And his father said to him, you don't need that crutch. That's how he put it. You don't need that crutch. And he thought to himself, maybe not on the spot, but sometime after, <coughs> that booze was a crutch. The booze to his father was a crutch. He drank himself to sleep every night. But, you know, you don't need that crutch. But why does this, why is that, even to us who are believers who know that we need God every moment of every day, yet still we're tempted to show ourselves, we don't really need him, show ourselves strong. I think this is a temptation here to Christ as well. You're the son of God. You shouldn't be out here starving. And you should be taking care of yourself. And there's a son of God, creator of the heavens and the earth. The second part of the test says, no, I don't actually take care of myself. Imagine that. 
I rise people, raise people from the dead. I can make water into wine. Right? Water into wine is not a transformation. That's making something new that wasn't there before. There's chemicals in wine that don't even exist remotely in water. He made something brand new. I can create something out of nothing. I think stones and bread would have been the same thing, right? Uh, bread ingredients are not in, in rocks. See how smart I am? Um, so, yeah. But no, I'm not going to. Why? I don't take care of myself. I don't. I do what he says. I go where he goes, tells me to go. I say what he tells me to say. I don't take care of myself. How marvelous. It's truly like being a child, isn't it? We're being to be children with adult brains. Jesus was not to be some superior kind of human or different kind of human. In fact, in fact, he is, which is, you know, a brain-splitting doctrine is the hypostatic union. The fact that he's God and man and one person forever. The fact that he does have the power to do miracles, but he never wants to use his supernatural power to provide for himself or to assist himself. Never once. He did use his power to reveal who he was, to show Israel. Per prophetic, prophetically, he showed his authority. We'll see this after we get through the Sermon on the Mount. We start in chapter 8 of Matthew. The miracles start coming. And each of these miracles that Matthew shows, which he, Jesus had thousands and thousands of them, but Matthew picks particular ones to show that Jesus has authority over this and he has authority over that and he has authority over that and he has authority over that. And it covers the whole gamut of human life and, and the earth. He has power over it all. But he never used that power to assist himself. He is truly human. The plan of God for the humanity of Christ is to be exactly what all humanity must be. All humanity. So we are believers. What are we predestined toward? To be conformed to his image. What are we to do now in our spiritual lives? We look into the mirror of the word of God and from the glory we see in there, it's transformed into our glory. From glory to glory as from the spirit. With the Word of God and the Spirit of God, we become those who live and think and speak like Jesus Christ. He is what all humanity must be. I don't even say should be. I mean must be. It's going to take a mighty supernatural power of God for all believers after we are dead to conform us with resurrection bodies and to finally remove our sin natures and to make us just like the Lord. And each of us in our own individuality. I cannot wait to see you there. I wonder how different you'll be. I wonder how different I'll be. But it's going to be glorious. That is our end. So Jesus is first tempted with the idea of doubting, not who he is, but the purpose of his life. 
And I think if you doubt the purpose of your life, I think you would start to doubt who you are. Now, the same thing happens in the Garden of Eden. When uh, the Lord comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he says to Eve, what did you do? He said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. He deceived me. It's as, Je- as Satan is trying to do to Jesus here. It is a deceptive ploy. That the plan of God for you, is, there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong with it. I mean, should you be out here starving in the wilderness? And so deception plays an important role in satanic temptation. And he's very good at it. I mean, who here hasn't been deceived into thinking something was right and it was wrong or to thinking it was okay and it was terrible or to thinking it wouldn't be that bad? Come on, it's just a little. It wouldn't be that bad. It's not going to be that bad. And it was bad. It was even worse than you thought. Deception. Who among us has he not been successful in dropping some doubt into our hearts about the very plan of God? I, I went through a period of my Christian life where the, exist, the, the reality of God and who he was became very doubtful. I thank God for that time, actually. I've told some people about it and said, well, you know, they get nervous for me. And they say, wow, they never, I guess they never doubted that way. But I'm happy if you haven't. But when I look back at that time where I was in, in grave doubt that Christianity was even real, it made me such a stronger believer. Because I had, to, I had to really fight in my soul to know its truth. Deception is one of the first. Same with Job, right? Job uh, doesn't know what's going on in his life and he loses everything and everything goes wrong and he's thoroughly destroyed. And... The, you know, Satan said to God, you take everything from him, he'll curse you. And so Job, you know, he's deceived. He's deceived into thinking that God just wants to torture him for no reason, which is the conclusion he comes to. Now, as I use this myself as an example, doubt does not always lead to unbelief. Doubt can lead to a deeper faith. And without trials, we will not mature. That's James 1. We will, spend, we will spend one class, I don't know when next week, but one whole class will be on James 1 and 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul has the thorn in the flesh and we are tempted in all things or tested in all things. And what we're going to see out of that is, you know, what, what's up when God says or James says God tempts no one and yet here we see Jesus being led into temptation and we can actually sort that out really nicely. And it's an awesome lesson to learn. All right, so there's Satan and our Lord. And in the few minutes we have left, we can ask, okay, now application to us. What about you? Satan is a deceiver, a tempter, an accuser, an adversary, a slanderer, a liar, and a murderer. What a resume. A deceiver, a tempter, an accuser, an adversary, a slanderer, that slanderer is diabolos, that's what devil means, a liar, Jesus said he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and the examples are many. To deceive you, 
Kind of like he's saying to Christ here. Should you suffer as a child of God? There's plenty of churches and denominations who conclude that no real Christian should suffer at all. I, I really think they're hoping that their congregation doesn't read their New Testament. Should you suffer as a child of God? You should have no problems with people. Correct. You should be loved by all. Your life will be prosperous. <clears throat> How about this one? It's okay to be bitter and angry at times. They deserved it. No. You don't have to sacrifice all that much in the Christian life. You know, don't take it too seriously. You can live for the world and still worship God. That's one that many believe. It's a lie. They've bought a lie. You'll receive from God everything you want. Nope. Uh, Your family and friends will receive you because you're saying what's true. Now think about that one. I've learned the truth. I went through this. I've learned the truth, and now I can bring it to my family and friends. And I remember when I did. I I thought naively that uh, they would be like, wow, thanks. And then they all get it. I don't know what happened. I know what happened. They did not. And, you know, your response can be bitterness towards them. You can argue with them, fight with them. You failed there. You bought the lie that you bought the lie that you can actually force feed someone the truth. Uh, or you can also doubt. And what happened, like, say, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, in the, in the early church when a, many Jews had converted to Christianity, their fellow Jews hated them for it. Their own family, their own neighbors, they wouldn't speak with them. They persecuted them. They wouldn't do business with them. That's why Paul had to take a collection for the church at Jerusalem because no one would, none of the Jews around Jerusalem would do business with Christians. And so they wouldn't even sell them stuff. And so they suffered. They, they were very hungry and poor. And the temptation was, well, what if I just go back to my old family religion and then they'll accept me again? And that's what they're warned of in the book of Hebrews. They're tempted to go back to the temple so that their own family, whom they loved, would actually accept them again. But here we see, and we we'll close here, look at 1 Thessalonians 3, because this, what I just mentioned about the early Jews in the church, happened in Thessalonica as well. 1 Thessalonians 3.5. So what we see here as we uh, come to a close here, uh, that <clears throat> you and I are going to be tempted by the tempter just like Jesus, not in the same way, but the way we're going to overcome it is to rely upon the truth of the Word of God. As Jesus is using the Word of God, so did the Thessalonians. And the the method that Satan chooses to use here is persecution. So he doesn't persecute Jesus. He tries to make Jesus doubt. And then in the second temptation, he uses Scripture uh, with a false application. And then so he tries that. In Thessalonica, he tried pain. And for, I mean, for how many believers does that work? In the parable of the sower, Jesus said that is one of the areas of failure. 
that's the whatever, which one I forget, but it's like the thorns and thistles. It doesn't grow because it's choked by persecution. No, I think it's the other one. It's a shallow soil. The shallow soil is the persecution. They received it with joy, and then they got persecuted, and they're like, no thanks, I'm not staying. I don't like persecution or pain. So look at 3.5. Yeah, 3.5. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you. We were concerned, he says in verse 5, concerned for you. We feared for you. That the tempter, this is the exact same word that Matthew uses to describe the devil, that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us good news of your, notice these two words, faith and love. <clears throat> the... Um, Al- Alistair Begg, right? you know, uh, it, a lot of people listen to him. He's an awesome Scottish accent. I wish I had that accent. I'd have a bigger following. <laughs> Not that I shouldn't care about that, but it'd be awesome, you know. But anyway, uh, he, says, he, he has a phrase that he says over and over. I don't listen to him all the time. I haven't hardly listened to him in a while, but um, he says the main things are the plain things because the plain... The plain things are the main things because the main things are the plain things. Meaning that what the stuff that God hammers at us over and over and over in the Word of God. You find it in like, you can't turn a, hardly turn a page in the Bible before you're looking at God's love, right? The plain main thing is the important thing. And it's a it's a trap for us that when we we see it a lot that we start to think of it as you know almost too plain, and that it doesn't deserve our attention. We say, oh yeah yeah yeah, the love of God. But these two words, faith and love, that of course is agape love, <clears throat> were the two things that when the tempter notice. He, as Peter says, and Paul knows this, that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, that he knows that the devil had been tempting them. He said, we feared because the tempter might have tempted you. How we know he's talking about? Go, go backwards to 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Go back to 2.18. We wanted to come to you, Paul said, I more than once, yet Satan hindered us. Satan is active in attempting to reduce the impact of Paul's ministry. We wanted to come to you, Paul said, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. I don't know how. Nobody knows how Satan did it, but he did. And therefore, Satan is active in Paul's ministry and therefore active in the places where he has planted churches. Thessalonica is one of his first ones. This is actually his first letter that he wrote that's in the Bible. So when you, uh, if we go back, go back to chapter 1, verse 2. 1, 2. <clears throat> we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father. See, now, 
Paul says here, and if you read on, you see that they actually, Paul said that they had become famous for this in their area, that they were those who had faith, hope, and love, basically, and that they were renowned for it. And that's how strong it was. And Satan's strategy against them, which they have, again, uh, your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. So we have faith and love and hope. And now go down to 2.13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God. And notice, now apply this to yourself. When you read the word of God, read it to you. Because by your faith in the word of God, knowing that the word of God comes from God, this will be true of you as well. He says in verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also suffered the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. What was Satan's strategy against them? Same strategy that he used against the Jews in Judea. Persecution from their own countrymen, from their cousins, from their uncles, from their parents, from their neighbors, from the people that they loved. And how did they overcome? So as again in chapter 3, Paul said, we feared after we left. Because we knew the persecution that you faced, that that Satan, the tempter, may have destroyed what we had built there. And when Timothy returned, Paul sent Timothy to find out what was what. And when Timothy came back, Timothy reported that they had faith and love. So we don't hear from Paul, oh, they had faith and love, that's it, (laughs) right? We hear from Paul, thank God. Because no temptation from Satan could overcome our faith in God's word. He said it here. You receive the word of God as from God. It's just what Jesus said. Every word that proceeds from, from where? The mouth of God. You receive the word of God as from God. And you had love. You had God's love. So when your neighbors persecuted you, you responded with not bitterness, not angry, not anger, not fighting back, not justifying, not not caving in and saying, wow, you know, I really want you to like me. I'm not going to take my Christianity so seriously anymore. No, they responded with agape love. And that's what we must do. The truth of divine love that we receive from the Word of God taught. It worked for the Thessalonians. It'll work for you. It worked for our Lord in the wilderness. Using the Word of God. Not defending myself. Not fighting back. I suffer. I suffer. I know that when I suffer, that that is for my growth. It increases my faith, and it increases my endurance, and it increases my maturity. So, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. That's what we do. Will it work? There's only one way to find out. 
Right? You say, well, it's in the Word of God. Of course it'll work. I mean in your heart, when you are truly persecuted, when you have a true enemies, are you going to maintain peace and strength and truth while they do so? So the benefit for us in this is a life so pure and powerful that it overcomes the very adversary of God. Satan is a deceiver, a tempter, an accuser, an adversary, a slanderer, a liar, and a murderer. And God has allowed him to test you and me so that we will show to ourselves and to whoever else is looking that what is the best life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the word. Thank you for all things that are your grace blessings, which are so many. We ask, Father, that your word would enlighten our hearts tonight, knowing that our great adversary is out there, but not being in fear and being ready with your word for any tests. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.